0: Welcome back to the Four Gardens Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Ifshin. On this show, I talk to people that are inspiring me in the areas of health, nature, creativity, and service. Today on the show, I've got Andrew Schofer, who's been one of my best friends for years and one of my most frequent collaborators. Let's jump right on in. Right. Yes. So good to be here with Andrew in Rappahanna County, Virginia today. Uh, Andrew has been, is one of my co-founders of Engaged Ecology, uh, along with Ariel Rubens. And yeah, Andrew has taught me more than almost anybody else about nature, wild plants and animals, so many different skills. So just working with him has been so educational for me as he's a, a really uh, incredible naturalist. I've also just enjoyed uh, the friendship with Andrew. We he thinks about things in a really different way, whether it's his lifestyle, uh, his diet, in terms of minimalism, which is so so fun to talk to him. And uh, yeah, and so on that note, Andrew, what is inspiring you lately? What practices, not about not what practices, but what in nature <laughs> lately has been fascinating you and has been uh, keeping you interested right now?
1: Uh, that's a good question. I guess I've I've moved recently from. Silver Spring and Baltimore area to now Frederick County, Maryland. So up near the mountains. And um, I've been really just taking the time to just explore the new wild spaces near where I live. I feel like that's like an important baseline to have when you move somewhere new. It's just tending the relationship with place. So I feel like I'm cultivating a lot of depth just through that exploration and just... The ecology is a little bit different uh, since it's a more in the mountains, but yeah, just like in the life transition, making a point to still get out um, by myself, especially, and have solo time in nature, which is one of my core practices. So, yeah, that's that's what I'm I'm deepening into right now. It's just refining a sit spot um, and just being.
0: Exploring the places in my ecosystem Beautiful. Yeah, we went for a hike off skyline drive yesterday together and I was just reminded of how many things Andrew always notices when we're in the woods um, He was noticing some fungi and some mushrooms that were hiding some bullets and some other kinds of mysterious Mushrooms as well as other plants and just identifying always so it's just fun to, to if you when you get the chance to spend time with with Andrew in a wild space And just check in with the way he's noticing the landscape, the animals, and the plants there. Um, Yeah, so that's good. But let's let's go back now to the beginning here for you. You weren't always so nature-connected and so comfortable in wild spaces. That's right.
1: That's true, yeah. I was really terrified of bees specifically since probably around like 7 or 8 years old until I was 18 years old. And I just had like a traumatic bee incident where... I guess I probably had some fear earlier, but I, like, remember very clearly my mom telling me that, like, if I let, like, a bee or a wasp, like, just land on me and I didn't move, then it wouldn't sting me. And I remember being at the top of a water slide at summer camp and, like, trying my best to do this. And it's highly possible I was, like, really nervous and still moving and, like, kind of freaking out. But it, like, still stung me. And I was, like – and ever since that day, I was, like, super afraid of just, like, even, like, flies buzzing past my head and have, like – a visceral response in my body and would just like run away from any flying or especially bee or wasp. And it was actually, I've never been stung since then funny enough, but now I actually like go in spaces with bees and wasps a lot and I'm not afraid.
0: So going from there, you know, you you've moved through that. What were the other big milestones for you and experiences that helped you feel more connected to nature and get, you know, get to where you are now.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll share that. Honestly, the biggest thing that helped me get over that fear was probably uh consumption of the cannabis plant and that medicine, even though I wasn't using it as in an intentional way at the time, that was actually the very beginning of my connection with that plant medicine. And, it allowed me to slow down enough to realize that my fears were not grounded in reality and that these these beings were just doing their job they're seeking out food sources pollination and uh they were just going about themselves their own way and it was my fear and my energy in their space and my lack of awareness actually bothering their space that enabled them to be aggressive towards me and to not have that positive experience. So I was able to slow down to recognize that with that medicine and that, along with a few other synchronistic things that happened when I was 18, led me uh, to push past that fear. One of which was being uh, immersed in the wilderness for 81 days straight in a wilderness therapy program in the desert of Utah. And, Yeah, a lot of things, there was a lot of transition happening in my life when I turned 18. I left high school on purpose um, because I didn't really, I read a lot of uh, psychology texts and just really became disillusioned that that was the best way for humans to learn. And thanks to my mom and some other people, I ended up in this awesome uh, wilderness therapy program. And as someone that spent a lot of time avoiding nature for probably 10 or 11 years. Um, yeah. Being out just with these incredible vistas in desert with sagebrush and cottonwood trees with the leaves turning yellow in the fall. Um, it was just an incredible experience to be like, I have the wilderness in my bones now. Like I've carrying everything on my back and just every day I'm like sleeping, living, going to the bathroom, everything outside a hundred percent of the time. And that definitely changed my life and made me really connected.
0: What was that like going from a pretty normal suburban Baltimore (laughs) existence to jumping all the way into this really intense, like more intense than I've experienced, uh, immersion? 81 days, you said, into the wilderness, into wilderness therapy. Yeah, how did that feel?
1: Well, definitely kicked my ass. I'll say that for sure. Um, Yeah, I remember one of my friends when I got there, remark just how like clean my fingernails were and just like I was very like (laughs) uh, not into getting dirty and yeah you definitely have like a layer a caked layer of uh, dirt on you the whole time you're there because you're in the desert and so there's sand and things going up into the air but probably the first maybe week to two weeks it was definitely a, a big struggle on most of it though is psychological is the resistance to pushing myself and not wanting to push myself so hard. And that cup, like the physical intensity of it coupled with the interpersonal work of everyone there sees a therapist. And then there's also group therapy work being done. And there's like person, like it's kind of like coaching almost in addition to the therapy where there's specific work that your therapist uh, assigns to you each week with like your, Help and consent as well, um, for just ways to show up differently in the group and just show up in your life. But you're bait, there's basically no distractions. There's nowhere to hide. Like uh, you, you're just like forced to like face your demons, basically, or face the things that aren't serving you in your life. And it can feel really intense and make you want to go away. And they actually intentionally design a structure where you since i was 18 i was legally consenting to be there but if i wanted to leave i signed a paper that i would have to walk 20 miles in any direction with two guides following me and then i'd get a phone call and to like my parents or whoever and if they that didn't go through they'd drop me off at like the homeless shelter in durango colorado so they make it really intense to like also leave because they know how intense it can be but at a certain point that intensity became empowerment because I learned how to work with it and I became stronger and I started leading hikes with people with topographical maps and a compass and l- taking bearings from the land. And yeah, I have a lot of stories like that, but I got to a point yeah, where I felt confident in the skills I needed to show up and survive and, and thrive even.
0: Yeah. It sounds like such an intense time. To go through, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about those programs more. And and also, you had this as experience as a young adult and sort of took that into your work following that. I know when I met you, you were already working with children and sharing nature connection. How did you, coming out of nature, uh, wilderness therapy, how did you apply that right away into your life? Well, I would say
1: I didn't apply it right away other than pursuing my connection for nature. I like right after that I went I moved to Idaho, Northern Idaho in a small town called Sandpoint, which is about 30 minutes to Canada, 30 minutes to Washington state and 30 minutes to Montana and very wild place as well. And I would I like to describe that when I was in Utah in wilderness therapy, I really got the essence of the wilderness in my body and my bones and then when I moved to Idaho, I really started learning why the nature connection is so important, why it's so vital actually for a healthy human life. I actually personally believe it's not possible to be healthy fully as a human if you don't have a some form of nature connection practice. I know you agree with that. <laughs> I do agree.
0: Yeah. 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 I strongly agree. And so when you were in Idaho, so you went from the wilderness therapy program to Idaho where you were doing, that was the regenerative, what was the name of the program?
1: So that was called Inner Pathworks. Inner Pathworks and okay. I had a mentor randy and a few other mentors carrie and cassie and then later gail who i met up there and what i was doing up there was in this program where we were basically learning wilderness skills learning about brain psychology and or just like brain anatomy even and eco-psychology um a lot of just different things that my mentor randy put together that uh he kind of he likes to call it jedi training but just like Honestly, the biggest thing was the awareness pieces, though. Like, he would have us spend lots of periods of time in the woods behind our house in Idaho and uh, just practicing different things, whether that's, like, walking blindfolded on logs uh, without falling off or seeing if you can uh, walk in a forest and put your hand out and sense a tree before you're actually going to bump into it and just things where you're really refining your awareness on a very minute level, and uh, that helped. That really like was the doorway for like the nature connection piece of like, wow, how deep can you go? And we got to go to some primitive skills gatherings. We went to uh, Tom Brown Jr.'s Tracker School, where he's one of the best uh, animal trackers, and also, in my opinion, just one of the best. The people that has the most the, has cultivated the deepest level of nature awareness. That's a Western uh, American person. Um, that's teaching classes. And so I just got exposed to a lot of skills and just a lot of people that had mastery over these different nature connection techniques and just saw the richness and the depth that it enabled them to have in their life. and and really, if anything, the sense of connection, it's really about the connection for me of nature's this external thing that we're a part of, but that is just a huge mirror for, that truth that we're all related, we're all connected, that what affects me affects you. And I think that's where the real juice lies in deepening and committing to those, exploring those practices.
0: Yeah, it's it's so dramatic to go from that raw fear of bees and insects all the way into that subtlety, all the nuances of those practices that you've worked with and these teachers, so I think it's important. That's one part of this your story. like we we highlight. We we've done a number of presentations for teachers and educators together, uh, where we work with preschool teachers and just sharing, first navigating those big fears, realizing we can't get anywhere without just confronting those initial fears and uh, nature aversion. To get you know our goal is to get them, and that's my goal too, is to get into these subtle awarenesses of nature to deepen our listening for our wild spaces. For plants and animals Which is something I've always um, Picked up from you Andrew too I mean we, t- we share in another interview here On a practice episode The sit spot technique But I'm just no- Andrew is um, Just spending time in the woods With Andrew He's listening He's noticing wher- Where the animals are Where the birds have been Where the tracks are He's not afraid to stop And inspect some poop on the ground too <laughs> And learn from that as well So yeah just beautiful To take that journey from Raw fear to subtle awareness And curious too how You've, if there's more you want to share on that journey of of your story, and also just how you how you've begun to share it too, or how you like what was that transition like to being a teacher? Like to hear that too for you.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, I that's like the I guess another aspect of like the work that I've done in the world, and that is older than the nature connection piece because. Yeah, I think I started working with kids. I guess I did a few random babysitting gigs when I was like maybe 12 or 13, but then I worked with kids probably starting at 15 until now. Um, and But the first time I got to do nature connection stuff with kids, I guess, is really with a small gardening program where I met one of my dear mentors, Gail Burkett, and um, I... Met her at a teepee pole peeling party, so we were peeling, uh, these long, uh, poles for the bark off of them for a for a bunch of teepees for this uh, gathering that uh, was happening in Montana, and um, yeah, connected with her, and we instantly had a really strong connection, and I offered to help her, uh, at this after school garden program in Idaho with kids. And that was just such a joy to uh, not only just be with the kids and have our hands in the soil, but also just work with and be, be meant start that mentoring relationship with Gail where she's just so attuned to me and also these kids, even though I'm uh, um, I was just like 18, 19 year old young man at the time. And that blew my mind that an older woman such as her would just have such a level of understanding and attunement of what I might need in my life at that time. And, and also just allowing me to show up with the kids in a way where she's not, where she's encouraging the connection, not putting these limits and also the connection with the kids have with the soil and with the plants and just the level of reverence for how simple, but also just how profound it is. I know you know just the act of planting food that you might eat or that you're going to give to someone else. Even if you don't even harvest it, just knowing this plant's in the ground and you're you're intentionally utilizing your effort to create this abundance and this beauty.
0: Yeah, I could definitely relate to that whole experience of, of gardening together and creating together. And, uh, you know, it's a big part of my story as a preschool teacher into gardening and nature connection. So going f- finding the love and wonder with the kids and something though, I, that you really added to my toolkit and awareness was the important of wi- importance of wildness with the children too, of, of, um, lunar nature explanations, which we would say are just free, free form nature time in the woods too. So going from that gardening first connection, how, when did you start to get into that of working with kids in the woods and, uh, also like that wildness piece, is that just part of you? Or is it, is it like, where does that come from when you're in your pedagogy?
1: Yeah, um, I guess I'll just continue the journey for a minute and then I'll talk about the wildness piece. Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, so after I left Idaho, I moved to California, studied for an amazing uh, wilderness program there that was broken up into two years. Uh, The first was called the uh, the Regenerative Design Nature Awareness Program at the Regenerative Design Institute, RDI. And that's based in Bolinas, California. And that has transitioned. And now there's a daughter school, which I, uh, I went the last, I was there the very last year that program ran. And then it kind of transitioned into this new program called the Weaving Earth Center for Relational Education immersion program and so I was the first cohort in my second but I was a second year student in that cohort because it kind of bled into that daughter program Um, and yeah that was probably the most fun educational experiences I've ever had in my life like consistently um, where it was I've always been passionate or I've been passionate for a long time about just alternatives to mainstream education and so That was pretty high up there in terms of success, in terms of what alternative education could look like that really meets and serves people. Um, And just to give you a visual, it was like 40 adults of all ages from like 18 to 65 meeting in a yurt on a farm uh, like two or three days a week for, I guess I did it for two years. And there's also just these layers of there was first year students, second year students, third year students. There was elders um, in <laughs> there was elders holding accountability for and, and the leaders. It was just all woven in in this really beautiful way. And so you felt this, you felt these layers of support that you don't always feel and layers of integrity um, that were just really beautiful. Not to mention just that we were on these beautiful properties. We could, My first year, I could literally walk to the ocean. So a lot of people, when they were just having a difficult time or whatever, they would just skip whatever the class was and just go jump in the ocean and just let nature heal them. And so I felt like the school was really practicing what they preach by allowing space for one, self-care, but just really letting nature be the teacher as well and not judging that as something wrong like they're skipping or whatever um so yeah so i was in california for two years doing that then instead of doing a third year i decided that i really wanted to apply those skills in a professional setting and so i started working with kids at an organization called the vilda foundation which means wild in i'm pretty sure swedish it's either swedish or finnish um yeah and the woman who created that program, Mia Andler, she was also a graduate of the RDNA program. And so I did that program for a year and that was really great To That was probably one of my first experiences working in a group of people who were just really aligned in how to be with children in a good way Um, and bring in that wildness piece where it was really about the connection, like I said before, instead of the, um, instead of doing a bunch of what some people call hard skills or just like these concrete skills, like knowing how to make a fire, tracking animals or plant identification um, or carving. there, There was still, that was included in the program, but there was more just an understanding that kids just need to play. Kids need to explore. Kids need to have this connection. And if you're always being told what to do, that connection can be really stunted, um, and just because it's organic, it's it's how you create a relationship. You know, like the best relationships, in my experience, are be are with like full consent on both parties, and there's this timelessness, this spaciousness for that magic to come forth. Um, and <laughs> as for wildness, I mean, I'm always, I'm just one of my core values is like the balance of the sacred and the profane. I've just seen over and over again and so many different spiritual teachings that that's always apparent by the people that understand them the most. And just, it's super fun. Like, why would you not want to have fun and be a trickster, especially if it can help people heal and grow and thrive? Um, I've heard stories where there's, like, medicine people that will, like, go into ceremony and they'll, like... <laughs> They'll just like fart really loudly because, and people are like, look at them, like, are you crazy, like, what? And they're like, yeah, like, the the sacredness doesn't become sacred if we take it too seriously if it's too
0: rigidly held. Yeah, I think for me the wildness I witnessed it too. Yeah, I see. I definitely see the sacred and profane balance in uh, knowing you and and in the world. And I think uh, I think wildness too doesn't need to look like with children out of control children. Like I think (laughs) I say wildness because you can, you can like, and both of us rile up, we work with children where you can get them riled up. But wildness to me has looked like in our, in our work together too. the animal forms, you know, becoming an animal, um, moving our body in sort of unstructured, unplanned ways. It's sort of a connection, but bridging the creative garden and nature garden for me of tapping into something that's, that's unstructured and yet at the same time, naturally structured, it's not overwhelmed, overstimulated, but it's um, it's it's sort of a imaginative play, intuitive play, nature-connected play. So, yeah, I see you doing a lot of that, even in your own life, and so I, I'm not surprised it's, uh, it comes out when we work with the kids.
1: Definitely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, I guess one... Concrete example of that that I really enjoy doing is um, letting kids, especially even like kids as young as like, I think I've done this with a kid as young as four of like light a match, uh, or use a knife, carve in a safe way, and it's kind of it can be counterintuitive because sometimes there's kids that have ADHD or they're just really rambunctious or have a hard time paying attention or following directions, but. I and I probably would do this with those kids in like a one-on-one where I don't have to worry about any other kids and I can just make sure this one child is being safe. But almost every single time when I give a kid some responsibility with something that has the real power to hurt them, maybe not kill them, but has the power. Hopefully not kill them. <laughs> hopefully not kill them. But like with my supervision, that would be highly unlikely is my point. But they, they really they, – it's like almost this respect that you're passing them like, okay, you want to show, show me that you're powerful, that you're capable, and, like, here you go. Like, this thing will hurt you if you're not paying attention. And every time I've done it, I've seen kids that do slow down enough to do it in a safe way. They might need a little guidance and some pointers here and there, but it just really brings something out of a child too know that an adult is respecting them that much and trusting them that much and even allowing them to fail um as there's many kids that they'll light a match and just immediately toss it away <laughs> without <laughs> paying attention to where it's going um but just to see yeah the and, and i think also the magic of the wildness is that in our society that's really uncouth of Four-year-olds aren't supposed to be playing with fire. Um, and when they do, and they're doing it in a responsible way, and you can see that it's act- they're actually being safer now around fire because they actually have a connection with it. They've experienced it. They know that if they hold it for too long that it's going, it's going to burn their fingers and that's going to hurt. And just that exposure, I, I just believe people are going to be safer and more confident, more knowledgeable, and be able to have better outcomes by actually facing that connection. And of course, I'm not going to force a kid that's scared or doesn't want to to do that. But uh, more times than not, a child is excited about
0: trying that out. So hearing that, yeah, I think this has been two definite themes of our work has been around with Andrew and I have been both transmuting fear for adults and children around nature, transmuting it through awareness of what are the real risks? What are the real dangers? And then this other theme because they're often a lot smaller than they seem. I'd like to g- revisit that with you. Um, but also, it's the, it's the same with this responsibility issue of what is the real risk of a four-year-old lighting a mask match with supervision? Um, comparing that to what's the risk of them not understanding fire at all and being afraid of fire or developing fears, this can be applied to a lot of areas of nature. And so I, one, one um, early childhood expert I work with who designs playscapes, Nancy Stranisti, um, check out nature play at home too, I think is her, is her book. Well, we'll and she's, she talks about, uh, a risky play as a, a right for children, that children have a right to take some level of risk. And actually where the real injuries happen is when you build a playscape or play area for children or construct it where there's no places for there to be risk for risk to be taken. And so that's when you see kids launching themselves off tall things or taking really uncalculated risks where they break bones or worse because they haven't had the opportunities to to either be trusted to take risks by adults or to take them on their own. So I see these, like both the match lighting example and many others of things we do of walking on, balancing on logs, for instance, or being trusted to navigate through densely wooded or, or um, lots of foliage areas and notice poison ivy, things that I've done with you like that. So I think there's a lot to say about, about this, of um, how do we shift children's children towards responsibility and calculated risk-taking and away from protection all the time to the point that it impedes their growth.
1: Right. Yeah. It's so important. I mean, at some point in time your parents not going to be holding your hand and you're going to have to go out into the real world. And I would argue it's a lot easier transition when you've been allowed that responsibility and allowed to make mistakes with, guide, with someone guidance, making sure you don't make crazy big mistakes. <laughs> but I think small and medium mistakes are really important to have exposure to and even be encouraged to make mistakes because that means you're probably doing some real work, doing some real play and
0: exploration out there. I think that's right. Yeah, I think so. On that, on that note, of, I feel like it's a good moment to give some advice to parents here too. <laughs> sure. I think some parents will be listening, I hope, uh, to this conversation and thinking about things we advise to parents who are wanting more nature connection, wanting, wanting some more ideas around healthy development of children that are not growing fears but growing comfort in wild spaces, for instance. So what's some of the advice that you give to parents or model for them in the homeschool programs? you've run other nature connection programs.
1: Yeah. I mean, I feel like you can tell pretty easily whether a child is being supported at home in their nature connection journey. Um, And yeah, I've heard from one of my mentors says a lot that, you know, your nature connection uh, only goes as far as like the people around you supports it. And what that means, unless you're just so passionately committed to it, which can be more, I feel like it can be more difficult to be specifically passionate about something that our culture doesn't value, and especially as a young person. Um, And so it's really important whether, yeah, that's you as a a parent taking responsibility and investing time and deepening your own nature connection practice. So that looks like, learning what are your fears like am I afraid of ticks am I afraid of poison ivy like an art ecosystem am I afraid of bears eating me am I afraid of being struck by lightning am I afraid of getting lost am I afraid of whatever being uncomfortable being sweaty being hot heat exhaustion just figuring out what those are and just really what there's people out there that know how to deal with these things so you can either stay in that fear or you can work towards knowing what are those strategies. And it will probably take some work. It's probably not going to, you're probably not going to learn it all just in like one Wikipedia article, like in 15 minutes. Maybe you will if you find the right one, <laughs> but it also takes practice. These wilderness skills aren't something that you should just be like, read a book and then go plan like a two month hike in the back country. Um, Something that takes integration and trial and error and is best experienced with someone that has more experience than you, and so your children are looking for someone like that. Of if they have these amazing experiences in a homeschool program, for instance, or a summer camp, but then then they go home and they're like telling you about this amazing uh, bird encounter that they had, and then you're like, "Oh, that's nice, honey. You know, that's really going to shut down the story. That's not going to even just." Um, (laughs) yeah, that's going to shut down the creativity and the story and the curiosity. Um, But one thing that we like to teach, which is so great and so simple, is just you really, even if you are super busy and you just don't have the time or maybe whatever reason you don't have the interest as much to just, like, invest this time and money in learning these skills, just just being curious yourself and starting with your kid from baseline and just asking really good questions that you're authentically curious about. Like, oh, what were, what color feet did that bird have? What color was its beak? Like, how big was it when its wings were spread out? How big was it, like, this big or was it this big? Um, and just getting really curious with them of, like, which direction would, was it flying? Like, why do you think it was over there? Do you think it lives nearby? Where do you think it sleeps at night? There's just, like, a million questions you could be asking. And all those questions are getting those gears turning in those kids' head, And if... uh they're authentically interested then they might be spending more of their own personal time to figure out the answer um and <laughs> yeah i also feel like once you get past the fear part nature connection really is as simple as just going outside and playing like it's that simple and, and having unstructured like unsupervised time um allowing your child to i uh, Ideally a place that you feel safe letting them explore. Maybe you're sort maybe when they're younger you're in eye shot and earshot. So you can still keep tabs on them, but they have the illusion that they're kind of in their own world doing their own thing and that let them get muddy. Let them uh <laughs> let them pick up learn the what bugs are dangerous and then let them pick up the bugs that aren't dangerous and uh just that emerge in that intimacy of like maybe you're gonna squash a few bugs and my val my personal philosophy on that is I'd rather have my child hurt a few animals and I can teach them about being respectful about that than not having the exposure at all where they're actually never gonna learn and never gonna have a connection with these beings. Which I would hope that one day they'll they will learn to respect and protect.
0: Those are great tips. Yeah. Thanks for sharing those. I think that's for sure. Those are all really actionable of just things we teach, um, to teachers too, to also implement of creating those spaces, letting kids, you know, just play and get muddy and, and go. I mean, those are, those are the simple ones. Educate yourself too. Yeah, so you're not overreacting or underreacting to the or, or designing like designing the experience too. You want picking the area consciously, picking the setting intentions for that journey. There's there's a lot of tips. You know, when you're when you're doing a trip with more kids, I think it's a little different than building a normal routine with your children in your backyard. Or in a park nearby. (laughs) Yeah, I want to take a shift. Can I say one more thing on
1: that? Yeah, I I like your, like, design for success of just, like, let's just say, like, you really don't like kids getting muddy because it, like, messes up your car and you don't want to, like, have to be cleaning it or paying someone to cleaning it, like, every week. Like, well, they have, like, these, like, dog, like, like, mats that you can get where it's, like, it just protects the whole, like, back of your... A car and then you can just throw in the washing machine. So it's like yeah design if you know something's going to be an issue like Preemptively try to come up with a solution. So that's not preventing your kid from having these experiences
0: Let's shift our conversation now to talking about personal practices and lifestyle design, which are two areas I've learned a lot from you Uh, Tell me first. What are you doing in the mornings these days? What are your practices right now? Sure Well,
1: I'll share that my practices really start at night is what I've learned. And so I have an alarm on my phone at 9 p.m. that goes off. And so if I'm on electronics, I'll turn those off, put them on airplane mode, and then I'll brush my teeth and wash up for bed. And then I will just read or hang out with my partner or friends or uh, just Mostly just hang out in bed and get like do some like calming activity until um, I fall asleep. And then I'll wake up at 7 a.m. every day. And I try to allow to have at least like an hour and a half to two hours for not necessarily practices the whole time, but just spaciousness in my schedule before I have to like go to work or do work um, so that I don't feel like I'm rushing. Cause I feel like that actually. Really adds to my practices knowing that i i'm not like on the clock i'm not like the alarm goes off at seven at 703 i have to be in the shower and at 705 i have to be like having my towel in my hand Uh, i i personally really don't like practices like that um but so my morning regimen is i use mint essential oils and uh mint has a really activating smell so i'll uh, smell those. I just like, open the cap and smell it. Um, I don't necessarily even dab it on my fingers or anything like that. Um, but yeah, the mint's really activating and then I'll jump in a cold shower. I'll, I mostly just do a rinse. So I'm not doing like a time shower or anything. It's probably like, I don't know, 10 to 20 seconds. Um, and just getting the cold water on my body. Um, and just to wake me up and shock my system awake. And it feels, it can be a little intimidating, but it feels really freaking good when you get out. Um, then I will either go for a walk or for a run. Um, and in the past, currently I'm not, but when I live near trails with softer ground, I really like to do that barefoot because it wakes my feet up and really connects me to the earth. Um, then when I get back, if I, I'll either work out or I'll go home and do some breath work. And I have a few different breath work practices I'm experimenting with right now. Um, I've also been really uh, enjoying, I'll listen to some like classical or instrumental music. And I'll uh, either do morning pages, which is just free form writing. Or I'll just set a timer and just write whatever I'm interested in writing that day. Um, and that just I've been wanting to get more into writing and I feel pretty fresh in the morning, so. That's just fun to see what ends up on the page. Um, Then lastly, uh, if I didn't work out that day, I'll then put on some headphones and just do some free-form dancing just to get my body moving again. Um, And, yeah, so it's mainly just, like, focusing on how do I wake up my body and my mind and get creative and in my center. And so if I have all those things done – then I'm usually ready to either eat food or jump into some work.
0: Thanks. Excuse me. I had a sneeze Oh, you're good. But I do do endorse all those practices myself and have adopted some of them from you, particularly barefoot, running and walking, Um, the cold shower and dancing are things I talk about a lot in my practices. And also you and I have talked a lot about technology boundaries and how important that is to us. So these are all common uh, themes we've talked about and practices I now share with you. So yeah, really good to really good to hear you've you've built such a, a great morning to support yourself and and I think also would encourage people if they haven't already to listen to Andrew's podcast uh, his practice episode about sit spots. So I feel like we've gotten a lot of gold from you around uh, your nature practices and your health practices here. Um, you mentioned to me that you're having some challenges in when it comes to service. Uh, would you be open to expanding on that a bit more sure so as you know
1: we and Ariel were working together for several years and we've kind of put a pause on that specific work under the engaged ecology moniker for now we're all doing exploring different things and integrating new wisdom into our lives and since that time I've done some personal nature connection programs with kids in the Frederick area and right now, and that's also shifted and a lot shifted actually around my 28th birthday. And now I'm doing something I've wanted to do for a long time, which has been work with my father, um, Hank Schofer shout out to him. And uh, yeah, so my family has a furniture business that's been in my family for 107 years. And during the pandemic, it now, just shut down being a furniture business, but there's still um, some real estate involved in uh, that business. And that's something that I'm interested in learning about how to leverage that so I can further my mission of nature connection and just helping people thrive and um, heal trauma and lots of other juicy stuff. Um, But yeah, I find myself in this space where Part of my the the place where my path is taking me to do my service is calling me to, I guess, step more into my financial power. As we both know, unfortunately, in this culture, nature connection work is pretty undervalued. Even just nature itself is pretty undervalued. Even though a lot of people like to look at nature, there's less. It's it's more it's been more commodified, and there's not. People don't honor like the inherent value of well, one, just how beautiful it is, but also just that we, we need the we need the trees to survive. We need the ecosystem to be intact, to be healthy and thriving, or even existent as humans. Um, so, and that's something that I've always, yeah, had a hard time with, and also just, a lot of working with you actually is just really. driven home to me how important it is to offer work that values your time and you're actually doing a disservice to the work itself by just accepting a small amount of money for the work Um, and it's really and in practicality it's just unsustainable it's not regenerative it's not practicing what we preach of we want to do work that's creating systems and expanding and be able to offer more and be able to impact and reach more people. And so uh, the work with my dad with the real estate coupled with, um, I'm also exploring a few different trainings. One of them is a program with an organization called Medicinal Mindfulness, and they're based in Boulder, Colorado. And they're one of the first organizations in the country to offer Cannabis in a ceremonial setting in a legal way Um, and Based on my experience earlier with the bees and that's just been That's continued to be such a profound teacher and mentor for me and something that I've had a lot of resistance myself to Wanting to share with other people a lot of because just the stigma around cannabis and how it's Illegal still in a lot of places um, and just there's a, a view that it's used to kind of sedate yourself or distract yourself, or not. It's not really used by most people. And that's been my experience is that most people do use it to just get stoned, to get high, to sedate themselves, to escape, to distract themselves. And I've experienced that if you set intentions and put a more stronger container and context around it, whether that's a ceremony or you're yeah, just having just sitting down and just really being more mindful and intentional with it. That there's a lot of different other experiences that can come forth. Um one of that one of them is healing trauma, which is I feel like so necessary for anyone to be doing their personal mission work. Is removing those blockages, those woundings that are preventing them from sharing their gifts. Um and then also just with the connection piece, I really feel there's just this visceral difference where when you're out in the forest with your own cannabis or plant medicine, you, you can have an experience where you just visually understand the connection. It's not this intellectual thing. And I believe you can do that without cannabis medicine as well. But I feel for a lot of people, especially people that are coming from a more disconnected space, that it can really help accelerate that process and even teach them things where when they're not using the cannabis plant that they can integrate into their lives. And that's my goal with the medicine is that it's, it's a teacher. It's something it's ideally something that's not taking you away from your life. It's something that's helping you enhance your life. And that it, the integration piece is essential.
0: Um, yeah, that's great. I, yeah, I've always known you to be a very moderate cannabis user and overall clear-headed, sober person. And for me, that's always been uh, something I've valued in you. You're kind of uh, ca- not cautious, but more respectful relationship you have with substances. Is something I've appreciated about in you, especially as I've re-thought through and rebalanced my own relationship with substances, you know, cutting alcohol out before I met you, of my life, and reducing cannabis uh, caffeine and yeah, really living a pretty sober lifestyle. I'm not someone who's working with cannabis, but I, I just support people reclaiming different medicines, which have been demonized or criminalized unfairly un- unjustly and hurt so many people. So I think it is important work. And I'm, I do hope to feature other guests on the podcast in the future that are going to talk about um, using medicine and plant medicine as, as a healing tool in balance along with therapy and mentorship and other tools. So it's not a distraction. It's not a, uh, a numbing out, but it is going to, going to meet the need of healing that's so present in in this world. And I want to reflect back that you're, it looks, it sounds to me like you're shifting more overtly your work in the future towards a healing intention. And I think there is more known need. We talked in our business about what do people need? We would, we would, we believe we knew what people needed, they need, you know, we would, when we say we need gardens, we need to get outside, we need to know the plants around us. Not everyone knew they needed that and was willing to pay for that. That was a big challenge that you were mentioning before around running a nature connection business that was doing programs, that was doing, building gardens, taking people outside. And I love that you are thinking creatively around, well, people do know they need healing. They do know they need uh, trauma, trauma therapy and other kinds of that. And so is that part of your when you talk about your new uh, strategy in the service garden, is is that part of, are you seeing there being a solution within that? Is the real estate the solution of doing a side hustle or do you hope it's going to be the, like, are you, are you building towards a a mentorship cannabis healing business or like, how is that looking for you right now?
1: Yeah, I guess how real estate plays into it is uh, one. There's a big, no, no need financially for real estate as everyone's aware. Um, and there's definitely a lot of like shadows and also positive things and I feel like there's a lot of room for growth and healing even in that space and I guess why I see it as essential is well one just for like the capital backing and funding for some of these projects but also I feel the most what I when people go into ceremony an intentional way when a a lot of the biggest things they're talking about is set and setting. And so the setting piece is where is the, like the physical location you actually are. And in my experience, a lot of the, especially like the work that's being done to do these, use these medicines in legal settings. are done in a more clinical um, setting. So whether that's like a doctor's office or just like a therapist office where it's kind of like couches or chairs and, there's some other layer that is added that adds so much magic and richness to that healing. And I just think more effectiveness really to the healing experience when you're in a wild or semi wild place where you're at least even just outside in a safe space, like whether that's just like a beautiful garden or there's a big tree you're under. Um, So being able to utilize that capital to purchase uh, a piece of land where people can come and feel safe and um, utilize these medicines in a legal and safe way and get that healing and connection that they, that we all, we all deserve.
0: It's a beautiful intention for your real estate too. And so often I've experienced real estate is enclosing wealth and keeping people off the land or taking (laughs) the land. Uh, I really admire when people who have access to capital and land can turn it into places of healing and sharing. So yeah, really to support that intention in your real estate work, and I think it is very practical to have multiple income streams and multiple ways of supporting ourselves in this world, especially those of us who are doing transformational or experimental work or cutting edge work in the world. So yeah, really support you finding a beautiful balance between those different threads in your life. Thank you. Yeah, it's
1: there's definitely some uh, some challenges, but it's also so juicy and it's it's worth it's worth uh, figuring out.
0: Yeah, well, I'd love to have you back on for an update uh, on those different threads in the future and those paths. And I'm really grateful to be spending this time with you and, and for you to having this conversation with me, Andrew. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on and sending a lot of blessings and gratitude your way. Thanks so much, Jake.